Hi, this is the Mad River Anthology, and I'm your host, Vanessa Pike. And this is Mischief Mike. We're both from the Accident Lab. And today we have a special guest. Billy Tuggle from Chicago, Illinois. Today we're going to be discussing Billy Tuggle's slam scenario, why he's in Humboldt County, what brought him here, and what he plans to do with his future poetry skills. Billy, do you want to start us off with a poem? I would like to start you off with a poem. What kind of poem would you like to hear? Um, your graffiti one that I heard in Berkeley. Art is not a sin. But if it's a crime, consider me guilty on all charges. See, I write poetry in graffiti and vice versa. I have been accused of aesthetic vandalism, scribbling what moves the crowd while crowding the moves of the masses, a spray can sniper. If I'm guilty of anything, it's practicing the art of destruction while deconstructing artistic intent. I am style on mailboxes, rooftops, and the panels of trains. My name is Fame, and I leave impressions like Curtis Mayfield, my signature in permanent pilot ink. They say lowering property values. Property has no value. Spirit is the only possession. Mine bleeds into 24-hour daydreams and night visions of kaleidoscope missions with 10 numerals, 26 letters, and infinite style with which to manifest. Black book sketches become amplified parchment with electric hieroglyphics that burn themselves into the facade before me. I write poetry and graffiti and vice versa. Once upon the break of dawn, I rock prose photos and textbooks to bring them to future tense. Couldn't get past where there were no funds for art classes. Them fools over there, detention for smoking in the bathroom while my crew got busted for playing. Tag. They only saw the scratches on the breezeway window, but they still don't know who caught wreck outside the lunchroom. I told the principal that his principal philosophy was whacking to get with the times. He sent me home because I was out of line. His plan backfired. See, he set me free for a 72-hour bombing spree. That night, this kid with unprovoked aggression tried to step to me. Just because he didn't know me, he thought he could get with me, getting up and crossing out my name like victory, but biting my style all the while. Eventually, he and his boys shadowed me with burners and magnum markers across the city. See, one-on-one, -on -one, them terrorist toys couldn't deal with my guerrilla calligraphy. I ran subway tracks and tunnels, ducked under station platforms, haunted 24-hour buses and public bathrooms, leaving syllables colliding into positivity like love, will, and destroy hate, only to have messages of dysfunction, dissed, funked, and shunned thrown back in my face. On the Ave, the side streets, and the cul-de-sacs, I guided their chase. After blocks of urban scrawl, the battle slowly turned in my favor. Everywhere they wrote dissent, I doubled back and went over it with unity. Power and respect clashed with equal and opposite force. I let them down an alley, of course they thought they had me, at a dead end surrounding me where anxiety, my nemesis, and his accomplices. With intentions of finishing this kid, they shook up cans of malice and threw up anger, greed, and fear on virgin walls. So I reached within with all that motivates, and with a squirrel, a swish, and a few flicks of the wrist, I blazed S-O-U-L, from the asphalt to the heavens. And that's how I faded them all. Mm, thank you. Very good. Very wow. Uh, it's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> That's what I gotta say. I like no, seeing the look awesome. on people's faces when I do the spray can sound effect. I know, because it sounds so, it's it's crazy to me. It's totally crazy. I'm sure people listening are like, did they actually just take out a spray can and just spray it? No, we did not. That was Billy's mouth. <laughs> Someone tried to wanted to protest that in a poetry slam once. I thought I had a prop. Really? Mm -hmm. And as our audience may or may not know, in um, poetry slams, you cannot have any props when you go on and perform. It's just yourself. Not even a shirt that says anything about what you're going to be performing. So, 
I liked when you said property has no value. And um, do you feel like that that's the message of that poem, that property has no value and that, you know, what you're doing is coming from the soul and that, you know? So that's one of several messages, quite frankly. I mean, graffiti art, the reason why graffiti art is illegal is because people claim property. Mm-hmm. If people claimed no property, then you could, you know, write any kind of obscenity or draw any kind of picture anywhere you wanted to. I don't believe in people's rights to, you know, whatever that they own and, and, and so forth. But that is kind of, it's the general idea of being a graffiti artist anyway. Certain, ha- certain graph artists have an ethic um, and they can decide whether, whether or not and when and where they want to paint. But, you know, it, it really is a matter of your, of your own philosophy. Mm-hmm. The overwhelming message that I wanted to get across of the piece in and of itself is that um, it's an art form that needs to be reexamined as an art form. Yeah. But that definitely is one of the driving parts behind it. So you'd say that graffiti and performance poetry tie in together in, in your culture or in our spoken wo- word culture? Not any more or less than anything else does. It just happens to be something I do as a hip hopper. Mm-hmm. So I mean, if what if what you do is etchings, if what you do is you know make etch a sketch photos and take a picture of it and you write a poem, well then that becomes very much part of performance poetry. It's, it's a matter of, of what your messages are that you're trying to get across. So, would you say that your inspiration for this poem comes out of like some history with graffiti? That poem's based on a true story, several true, true stories, stories actually. Really? What's what's the craziest place you've tagged? Yeah, tell you us said a little you were, bit about your yeah. history with graffiti and hip and hip hop, or what what inspired you to make that piece. Um, well, being from the South Side of Chicago, um, hip hop came to Chicago pretty much at the same time that it exposed itself to everybody else in the early '80s with like the Wild Style documentary and mm-hmm. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and these sort of things, Sugar Hill Records. Uh, what was lost in a lot of people was how all of these different elements connected, DJing, breakdancing, emceeing, and graffiti art, all part of a, sub, of a larger subculture that had kind of the same mentality of, we don't really have much of anything else, so we're going to take what's left behind, recycle it, and create art. When hip-hop came to Chicago as more of a fad or a trend in, in, in the early 80s, this is right around the time of breaking in Beach Street, I was a break dancer, but because of the trendiness of it, a mm. lot of kids stopped dancing when house music became popular around 84, mm. 85. Mm. But instead of retreating to the next big trend, I just went deeper into what was the burgeoning hip hop culture and I began to paint. And that was around the time that I had moved back from the suburbs to the city and began to write with kids that I went to high school with, um, kids that lived around my grandmother's house and eventually my house and that kind of thing. I don't know if either of you are familiar with an activist and graffiti writer by the name of William Upsky Wimsat, but I went to high school with Upsky. Upsky is the author of a book called Bomb the Suburbs. Mm-hmm. Bomb the Suburbs was kind of a manifesto and a manual for tearing down for tearing down the current structure of urban living, whether it was through socio-political means or even by artistic means. And if you ever read Bomb the Suburbs, me and Upsky weren't super tight, but being graph writers going to the same high school, knowing a lot of the same people, a lot of the different stories and capers that happened in that book, I was either there. If I wasn't there when they happened, I was there either right before or right after they happened. Mm -hmm. So it's a big slice of history. So how did that bring you to slam poetry? Because you're in this graffiti scene and then... Because I know that slam poetry was founded in Chicago, right? Yeah, but those those events are are not at all mutually inclusive. Uh, my 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 coming to the to the slam scene and performance poetry came out of the frustration of me being part of the music scene or lack or not being in the music scene. Um, despite uh, my really deep 
background in hip hop culture, I'm also a vocalist and I goofed around with musicians and bands and things like that in high school. And I actually was going to be a singer. I sang in a Prince cover band, R&B band, heavy rock band. And as a writer and a lyricist, when you can't hold together all these different, you know, personalities and egos for long periods of time, you get mm-hmm. frustrated. And of course you end up writing a lot more than, you know, just song lyrics. I, mm-hmm. Since I was a kid, I wrote short stories. I wrote comic book ideas and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. So you always get little random stuff that doesn't work in the structure of a song and it becomes poetry. Mm-hmm. So I began doing music open mics around, I don't know, I guess 92, 93, 94. And that transitioned to poetry open mics because a lot of, those artists kind of traveled in the same circles. Mm-hmm. From poetry open mics, I eventually found the slam at the Green Mill in the mid-90s simply because that was where poets hung out. Mm. So I found it. And as far as slam itself, it was fun to go and watch other people do their thing, but the competition, I it kind of bugged me. And I think it kind of bugged me because I was really unfamiliar with performance poetry in general, poetry as an art form. But at the same time, sitting there and watching it and enjoying it and the inherent competitive nature of hip-hop I kind of came down off of my not relating to the competitive aspects of poetry slam it kind of helped me get into it a little bit more so I guess I've been competing more or less regularly in slams for almost eight or nine years now so would you consider yourself a slam poet then any poet that reads during a poetry slam is a slam poet that's a cliche um will you do another poem for us certainly It was something like a Friday night on the edge of the universe. One of those nights where timing was everything. On one of those worlds where moments were worth untold fortune because every moment moved too fast. The starship Full Metal Dread landed in the heart of the Amethyst City's south side where her captain knew that various turntable tribes were soon to do battle for stakes as high as love, respect, or old-fashioned props. But the captain knew that wherever there were DJs, there would be a party, and wherever there was a party... That kind of party, she would be there. He chased her across the cosmos for, I guess it felt like millennia, but time plays tricks on a boy's head when he's infatuated. He slid into a cafe a few hours before the first cut was cast. As he sipped something spicy from the bar, his mind tripped back to the first time that he encountered her, she dancing with wildfire abandoned beneath the pyramids of ore during a festival of moonrises. No satellite was she, but a full-fledged star of her own volition destined to warm countless souls. Damned, she believed hers was of another were to capture it, and that epiphany was the undertone to the blue noise of the room. Just as he had lost track of time for the umpteenth time at Eve was when she reappeared to him, striding in time with the atmospheric rhythm from behind the bandstand, she handed him another bubbling glass. She actually had the nerve to ask why he continued this quest. He sighed. He replied how his heart never lied, how she had mad style and was deeper than a well of emotions he had thought long ran dry, damned undisputed fly she was. When she demanded to know what he was staring at during that last stanza, he retorted, Sorry if checking out your ass is getting on your nerves, but brown-skinned earth boys love girls with crazy curves. She smiled as she gasped, backing away. He turned towards the bar to retrieve his drink. He heard a whisper in his ear, It's good to want. He turned back to where she was, to find but her scent in the air, the scent that warmed his soul. The irony was so thick, you could only cut it with time. Wow. So was that poem based on a personal experience? Yes. Is um, that you, that brown boy? Is that you? Come yeah. on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that poem was written 
one Friday evening after realizing that this girl I really, really, really liked was just plain not digging me. And it was actually going to be one in, it was actually the introduction to what was going to be a hip hop science fiction story. And it just kind of stood on its own. Hmm. So it's also the first poem I ever slammed with. Really? Yeah. Do you, um, do you sit down bef- when you're writing a poem? Do you sit down and you think of your topic and your destination before you actually begin? Yes and no. If I have a solid idea for a poem, then the idea is in and of itself just the idea. The framework is oftentimes um, comes afterwards. A lot of times on an idea, I'll jot down you know the clever line or two that I have, or if I'm not really coming with anything, I'll free write on the topic and then pull some things out of that. But I think that that's probably my most difficulty, my most my most difficult aspect of writing is finding a framework in which I want to place it. Hmm. Um, I write a lot of performance-oriented work because my background in performance poetry is not as a writer or academic. It is as a performer. Hmm. Um, but also I try to move away from structures and, and different, different, both written as well as you know vocabulary frameworks that I've seen and heard and done before. And uh, another question I wanted to ask you is, um, do you put a time limit on it? Like, does time matter in terms of poetry, whether it's how long you take to write a poem or whether it's how old a poem is? or No. Not at all. A, po- a poem is a poem. A poem's a poem. Um, I think that as far as how long it takes me to write, it can be an instance where I'll have a, an idea and it will just sit in the back of my head I have a poem called Negro Amplophobia, which examines the history of African-Americans and rock and roll. Mm. And I had an idea to write about that, and that kind of rattled around in the back of my head until the day Rick James died. Mm. Um, Rick James, in in my eyes, never really got the props that he deserved as being much more influential in music in general, not just being a funk and soul artist. Mm. And that just sort of gave me the impetus to write and create the rest of the poem as long as a poem is finished and i'm happy with it especially once it's been recorded or published Mm. then that poem is there and hopefully it will stand on its own forever and i'm also not one to retire poems people get into that whole i'm not doing this anymore i'm retiring it and i think that that's silly because you always have an audience that has not heard a particular message at any given time that you know that that you want to say. And also, you always go back to them anyway. Rock stars like Prince and David Bowie once threatened that they weren't doing any of their, quote, older, unquote, material anymore. Three years later, there they were, Space Oddity and Purple Brain again. So So would you have any tips for other poets or performers just um, about writing or just about performing in general? Do what you feel. And when I say do what you feel, that's, that's first and foremost the first thing I would tell anybody, whether it's I can't decide what I want to read at this open mic Mm. or I don't want to fall into the trap of trying to write for that three-minute window. Performance poetry is so inherently tied to the poetry slam right now that people seem to want to write for the slam. And there are different tricks and things you can do to appeal to people and to appeal to the lowest common denominator to get attention, to, to get a laugh, to make yourself sound deep and things like that but when it really comes down to it Mm. once you walk off of that stage um in a slam competition you want to write something that you're going to come back to five years 
10 years later when you're not slamming anymore, when you have the opportunity to, you know, read for kids or even just to read your poetry to your kids. You want something that's going to stand up and be a, a little bit greater than mm. that three minutes that you left behind. Right. Mm. I also know that you, that you were a coach before, that you coached a slam team. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you compare that experience for me, being a coach and then being on a professional slam team? There wasn't really a lot of difference, and because because I was also on the team. Oh, okay. Um, this was the 2007 Palatine, Illinois team. Palatine is a little uh, uh, suburb just northwest of Chicago. Um, my baby sister Andy Kauth, Dennis Florine, my homeboy, um, and Peter Barlow. We were the team, and Lisa Riardelli was our alternate. We were the team. Just being on the team. I can divorce myself from a lot more responsibility other than just trying to be a contributor. When you're the coach of the team, once again, it becomes about juggling egos. One of the most telling parts of the beginning of that summer as a team coach was one of my teammates was not happy when he discovered I was the coach because he didn't feel that we needed coaching. Hmm. When you're actually coaching a team, they're putting the responsibility in your hands to have honest and open critique, but also to give direction. And if everybody on the team is not willing to listen to direction, then there's no point. The coach is the one who is responsible for straight up teamwork. It has to be about the team. And if the coach doesn't in, does not enforce or inspire teamwork, then the coach has not really done his job. Being just a member of a team, it doesn't make any more or less of a democratic process, at least in my experience, because four of the five teams I'm on that I was on, we put one of the members in charge as the captain and more or less de facto coach. Mm -hmm. So you kind of just put everything in their hands. The only real difference is the lack of artistic responsibility to the entire team that you have to have. Yeah. Um, being a coach versus just being a member of a team. So in Chicago, do they do the same thing where you win a slam and then you have the, you move and you advance to semifinals and that's how they form the team is through a series of well, there's trials. three different slams in the Chicago metropolitan area. So, there, yeah, there's than, three different teams, right? Um, yeah. Palatine, Illinois, which hopefully they will be back. Uh, there's Mental Graffiti, and then there is the Green Mill, which is where the slam originated, the Uptown Poetry Slam. Mm -hmm. uh, Green Mill's method changes almost every year because Mark Smith, uh, who founded the slam and still runs the Green Mill Slam, is divorcing himself from a lot of the politics and competitiveness of it. So one of his regulars and usually a member from the previous year's team, if they want to take charge of it, then they can take charge of it and they can go through whatever method they want to select their team. The one year that I qualified for Green Mill's final, they took weekly winners and then semifinals and that sort of thing and then the final. I only slammed in the semifinal. I, I wasn't able to slam in that final. Mm -hmm. Mental Graffiti being a monthly slam, first and second place automatically qualify for the Grand Slam and then the top four or five other teams. So have you ever been on a team where you didn't want to work with the people that were on the team with you? Yes, mm -hmm. but that immediately changed. And that was not personal. It was simply a matter of I had done this before and there were also a little too much professional politics. And I don't say anything about anybody that I will not say directly to their face. Mm -hmm. And it's, like I said, it's not personal, rancorous, or acrimonious, but I had qualified for both Palatine and Mental Graffiti in 2007, and three years of Mental Graffiti, as well as some other politics that had been interjected, 
that was enough for a short time. And with the opportunity to work with Dennis and Andy and the Palatine team, um, it was a good break to make. And it wasn't so much that I did not want to work with somebody. The actual work itself I enjoyed when I worked with these individuals before, but it was really at that point with the politics and BS time for a break. Okay. Do you want to do another piece? Sure. Let's hear a piece that, that you feel is one of your favorites that you feel it touches you deeply and you are very proud of it something that you would that you would feel comfortable reciting to anybody would it sound terribly arrogant if i said that i feel pretty much that way about any memorized work i have for people who aren't watching i don't i don't have a notebook with me i'm doing probably of the 12 or 15 memorized poems of a few of those i kind of feel like that plays into the whole signature poem thing mm. i don't do signature poems so there's not that one poem i'm always going to be demanded to ask mm. but once again if you're going to write something and put it out there be proud of it mm. be proud of it you will always come back to it all right so well, but well, how about your your mo your the one you're most proud of or the one that you feel in your heart the most concrete lion you used to have such good hair, my grandmother would occasionally say. It seems to be something everyone has an opinion about, the hair they ask me. Is it heavy or hot? Do I wash it? Is it even real? Some attach stereotype and some no symbolism at all, but once I have their ear, I reveal the truth to them. I am a lion. I am a displaced wildcat awakening in the wilderness after 400 years of hibernation, awakened by talking drums that have reverberated across the Atlantic through common tradition. I am the fulfillment of Ethiopian and Egyptian progeny, prophecy making the creator their only sovereign. Infidels dread the locks. My knotty textured mane symbolizing the dark matter core of the sun. Heavy mass and density firmly wound on the verge of explosion. I am a lion leading the pride on rutical instinct. Marcus Garvey on the Black Star Line. Menelik of Sheba leading the caravan from his father's land with the ark in hand. Moses leading the exodus of Jah people. Not everyone dreadlocking calls Selassie I, but in spirit we are one people, one aim, and one destiny. Consciousness traced on follicle paths through the Levant, the Nile Valley, and along the Sea of Reeds. If the Fertile Crescent is the cradle of civilization, the Northeast Africa is the womb. The lion's mane is identification and antenna. You ever notice how in the clubs or on the street the dreads sort of congregate? See, that magnetism's got to keep us together. Sometimes black children unaware of their own heritage try to diss. Sometimes alky-fed crew-cut frat brats mockingly shout, Hey, Bob Marley! The joke's on you, Chris Farley. Bob Marley's a prophet that I think you ought to listen to if you only knew that he was challenging you to be more human. Like Naya warriors in the Baye fall, the hair stays locked up. Like so many of mine in Babylon dungeons, coils tight like formations of freedom fighters. I am soul rebel, buffalo soldier on the black hand side of America's cold war with itself, and I'm coming in hot. I have taken an oath to uplift my people en masse. I will not be state property for your entertainment. When it comes to the definition, I prefer to make one beyond the length. It's the stories and the anti-politric and the locks. See, their documents and his story don't define me. I took my first payment of reparation when I declared freedom from the home of the slave. Why do I rock the lion's mane? Because the conquering lion shall break every chain. I am not Jamaican or Trini. I come rough-hewn from Southside Chicago streets and urban sprawl. Grab your dictionary. Look up culture, diaspora, and legacy. There you will find me. 
teaching cubs to walk before they run, to rest before the dawn, to create their own fate, that death only comes to fools, and never, ever forget that you are a lion. I liked what you said about symbolizing the dark matter core of the sun. I thought that was so beautiful. It seems like something that you would share to your children, and you know that is a good message for them to keep your head high and you know eyes to the skyline and always be proud. And your hair uncombed. Yeah, and your hair <laughs> uncombed. I love that. I think that's so beautiful. Have such a free spirit. I really appreciate that about you, Billy. I was also reading today that you are, tell me about Polyrhythmic. I want to know about that, the Chicago-based multimedia arts collective. The Polyrhythmic Arts Collective was founded almost eight years ago. It'll be May of eight years ago in Chicago. And several friends of mine who used to be regulars at, and some still are, used to be regulars at the Mental Graffiti Poetry Slam and Open Mic um, got together and with a lot of other their friends in the arts community and formed this group that was centered around writers, but it brought in singers, writers, actors, comics, and the whole nine yards. And they've thrown things like Splatter Jam and an open mic that we call Safe Smiles. Um, Nikki Patan, um, Torin Williams, Patrick Sanchez, Ezekiel Brown, those are some of the names who are, were part of the early history of polyrhythmic, Jerome Manansala. Um, when I joined approximately four years ago, there were eight of us in total, and right now there's five. Elizabeth Harper, Drew Profilio, Bill Herbst, and Zeeshan Shah, those are my compadres and partners in crime. Hopes an open mic every Tuesday night in Chicago, and that open mic has been running for about as long as polyrhythmic has been together and in the same venue. Um, we write original, write and produce original shows, sketches, as well as hosting shows and such. Uh, myself, I've been relatively active and big in traveling, performing, doing workshops and things like that. Drew Profilio was also part of the, the Poetry Slam scene for a long time. He helped co-found the Rust Belt Regional Slam. Elizabeth is published and has a book, actually two books. Bill is recorded and published and did a lot of television. Um, Zeeshan's published. And we all were published together under the Fractal Edge. Okay, so one last poem from Billy. I am... Syllabalistically speaking, the heartbeat of a diaspora, America's brown-skinned stepchild, a mask of myself, babysitter, neighbor, teacher, best friend, poet, preacher, your people and folks, the demand for style from subways to subdivisions, Palestine to Palatine, Illinois, South Africa, South Korea, South Dakota, South South Bronx, Southside Chicago, act like you know. I am hope of descendants wiping away the blood, sweat, and tears of ancestors, godfather, godbrother, godsons, and daughters. In the desert of poverty, I am the water. Drink wisely. The hustle and battle, sticking to my guns without firing a shot, action and consequence, street knowledge and common sense, the karma of the streets, needs and takes, redemption and resolution, reincarnation and revolution at 33 and a third, vulnerable and fearless, free fall and impact. I am the ugly that God loves, the sublime attraction, your anti-hero, fantasy and reality more than duality, exponentially worth my weight and sheer potential and priceless in my achievement, above the rim and below zero, completion of the circle from within the circle. 
I am between Mother Earth and Planet Rock, the battle cry, U-N-I-T-Y, Firestarter, Rioter, Martyr, painting walls that they build so that you can see the other side, top to bottom, end to end, the dancer with my back to the bricks, ear to the speakers, 200% animation and sneakers, the anticipation between the needle and the record, the space between the boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom. Your reflection at the intersection of love and struggle, carrying the weight of soul like crates to the DJ side. I'll stand up next to a mountain and shout it down from the top of my lungs, echoing off steel canyons for generations with magnetism, mysticism, alchemy, a breathing manifesto, the bounce in your root chakra, energy to matter, matter to energy, we feeling we, funk merchant trading samples of you for pieces of me, the collage made with their refuse that now you can't refuse the proof, the force, the truth that time and space are not linear but a sphere. So forever I am here. I am hip hop, posted up front to back, pushing for the top, and always digging the scene with a b boy lean. Mm. www.billytuggle.net. You've been listening to the Mad River Anthology with guest Billy Tuggle. I'm your host, Vanessa Pike. And this is Mischief Mike. The engineer is Emily Craven. If you have questions or comments about this program, please call our listener and comment line at 826-6089. Or on our blog, you can find an online archive of past programs at Mad River Anthology, wordpress.com. The show is also available on iTunes. The Mad River Anthology airs the second and fourth Sundays of the month at 10 o'clock and it's produced for KHSU located at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California.